You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Prepare yourself. You're on the run with Remzo W. Martinez. All right, so if there's one thing that absolutely grinds my gears and sets a fire in my loins, all at the same time, it's the current state of the comic book industry. Whether we're talking about the publishing cartel with Diamond Distributors, who completely upended traditional comic book retailers during the high of the pandemic, or the stupid SJW agenda that's going on at Marvel and even some other publishers. I won't say DC. DC has tried it a little bit, but at least when they did it, they didn't intentionally try and attack their readers. So just things that are going on within um, you know, film and entertainment and video games as a whole. The comic book world itself is really the fountainhead for which everything we love in pop culture is coming from. Even non-superhero properties are just, I mean, pe- people who do not think of themselves as comic book people. They probably have one show or movie or series of books that they absolutely love, and it all came from comics. But the history of comic books itself as a medium for art and free speech and expression and a way to go ahead and write phenomenal stories and sometimes absolutely mediocre stories, which we'll probably talk about, um, it's a very long and detailed history. And if you can tie it into you know economics or philosophy somehow, I think you've done something great. And Rocky Farenberg from Think Liberty has done that. He wrote a three-part series called um, – ah, crap. What was it? I got to click out and find the title. What is it? I read all, the, all three of these, but I forgot what the actual title of it was supposed to be. Oh, um, Comic Economics, where he basically goes and looks at the market history, the um, – Da, 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 da. The history of the formation of the actual, you know, brick and mortar comic book shop, as well as comics today. And this is kind of a dated series. It come, I think it was, yeah, it was written back in November of 2018. But it's relevant now because I mean, 2018 was a few years ago, but it's still relevant because a lot of the same things that we're looking at in terms of where comic books and retailers go from here is really something that a lot of people are asking themselves, especially when. Um, a lot of the already endangered species of comic book stores started getting hit. And now we're talking about the age of digital comics and whether or not some publishers even want to continue to print actual paper comics. So what I thought would be fun is um, if we went ahead and looked at this series, I'll go ahead and read it for you. And what I'll do, if you want to go back and read it um, yourself and go ahead and look at some of the other sources and hyperlinks on here, I'm going to go ahead and link all three of the articles from this series in the show notes today so you can go back and reference some of this yourself. But what I thought would be cool, I'll go ahead and read these to you. I'll break for commentary since obviously things will have changed between... 2018 to now. So this will be kind of a, if you've read these before, because Think Liberty is a, is a pretty cool site, maybe you just want some newer insight on this and this might you know jog some thoughts of your own. So as always, if you hate me, if you love me, if you want to add anything to this conversation, follow me on all social media. 
Twitter, the Instagram, Facebook, at HeyRemso, and you can go ahead and find me on Parlor. I'm primarily on Parlor these days because the other platforms hate me, uh, just at Remso, R-E-M-S-O. So everywhere else, HeyRemso, H-E-Y-R-E-M-S-O, on Parlor, just at Remso. I'm easy to find. So let's get started. Part one, comic economics, market history. And I might also be uh, jumping around sentences and stuff. So, like, I, I definitely recommend that if this is something that you're interested in, don't actually read the stuff. It's pretty great. Um, with the advent of so many comics, investment speculation, and now record-breaking movies, it is a wonder that the government hasn't tried to get its hand, hands on the comic industry through regulation. This is not to say they haven't made mild attempts in the past, however, but the comic industry still seems to be very much an open market. In this first part, we'll look at the regulation within the comic book industry. Part 1, The Big Burn. During the 1930s, comics saw an uprising of critics. Just as any new trend, there was a coalition that formed against comic companies. Educators, civic groups, even the Catholic Church protested comics. If there's one thing that big religion and big government and big conservatives and big progressives love to do, it's kill fun. Isn't that right? I mean, come on. They still do that. But it, it's funny when you think about it because you look at a lot of old school comics and you had like real generic juvenile stuff and they had the horror brand where it was actually about crime and monsters and women getting their heads cut off. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of freaks people out. But, I mean, it's it's funny how things have changed. Oh, how they have changed. Um, during the... However, it wasn't until 1948 that comics actually met their match. His name was Dr. Frederick Wortham. That sounds like a supervillain name, just my note. A psychiatrist and author, um, Dr. Wortham drew the conclusion that comics created juvenile delinquency. This was based on the fact that most of the delinquent children he evaluated read comics. I think it's funny that he drew, he drew that conclusion from it, because if you think about one, back in those days, I mean, comics were a cheap medium. I mean, they were incredibly affordable. So, of course, people if, um, you know, who didn't have a lot of money to spend on movies or anything else, of course, kids who you know, had a little bit of walking around money after the Great Depression, of course, they're going to go for something. I mean, I bet all those kids like to chew gum, too. I don't think there's a tie between delinquency and gum chewing, but this guy found it. He began to speak out on the dangers of comics and interviews, symposiums, and even an article in Saturday Review of Literature, which excerpts excerpts, I can't read sometimes, which excerpts would later be published in Reader's Digest. Because Wortham was considered to be credible, many communities became fearful and put pressure on bookshops to, to not sell comics. Some even passed laws towards the end of 1948. Things escalated. I do want to note that one thing I know about Wortham is in his book, he basically accused... Um, well, actually, this is funny because he was actually right on one of them. <laughs> um, he accused Wonder Woman of being basically a vessel for people who were into BDSM, which if you know anything about um, Dr. Marston and his two wives, he actually, yeah, yeah, he was into BDSM and Wonder Woman was kind of like his vessel for that. So that that is actually true. That is actually true. Fun history. Um <laughs> it's it's kind of weird when they're right about one thing. But then he accused Batman and Robin of being a gay couple, which is absolutely ridiculous. But then again, it doesn't help that in some of the early Batman-Robin comics, you would see them doing things like, you know, showering at the same time. Not in the same shower, but like showering at the same time, like they had conjoined bathrooms. It was just, 
the mind went places. And then there was one issue where they're actually like sleeping in the same bed and Alfred's coming to tuck them in. So actually, now look at looking back, he probably did have a few reasons to think that maybe this is promoting, you know, things that would not have been, uh, you know, acceptable then. But um, but yeah, I mean, he was he was going after everybody, especially like horror and film comics. Ah, okay. Um, because Dr. Wortham was considered credible, many communities became fearful, but okay, I already read that part. The United States saw a surge of serial book burnings. These book burnings bore an eerie resemblance to the Nazi book burnings of the same time, but they were justified in that comics were not real books and therefore the burnings were not considered censorship. Wow, think of the mental gymnastics for that. Um, the Spencer and Binghamton, New York book burnings in 1948, the Cape Cardo censorship acts, uh, book burning in 1949, and the 1955 bonfire in Indiana, Pennsylvania, and a bunch of other places all led to the attention of the government. Because, of course, when people start getting antsy, the feds jump in. In order to sidestep the government control of comics... The Comic Magazines Association of America created the Comics Code Authority. You might know in some really old comics, I, everyone part of this. And, of course, you've got Marvel, which I think at the time was Timely Comics, and you've got DC. Um, anyway, however, many people were happy of this as they felt that the regulation would keep their children safe. Still, the government did have its hands in the CCA as it was headed by New York magistrate judge Charles F. Murphy. The goal of the CCA was to limit the content included in comics. However, this was actually far more notorious. There are seven highly restrictive sections of the CCA. Some of the restraints that the CCA placed on comic publishers were policemen, judges, government officials, and respected institutions shall never be presented in such a way as to create disrespect for authority. That right there should freak you out. No comic magazine shall use the word horror or terror in its title, and although slang and colloquialisms are acceptable, excessive use should be discouraged, and wherever possible, good grammar should be employed. The CCA was limited in what could be portrayed about religion, marriage, sex, costumes, and dialogue. They even went so far as to place restrictions on advertisements which surely affected revenue for publishers. You know, there, there are people like my dad who only buy old comics because he loves to see the advertisements in there, like the stuff that will, you know, you take a pill and it turns you into like Arnold Schwarzenegger and then you've got the other stuff that's like x-ray glasses and there, there's even like a little nuclear atomic kit playset for kids and some really old comics. It's, it's crazy, but it's crazy. I mean, this is, they, they said it wasn't censorship, but... It was basically censorship. That's what happens when the government gets involved. They, they change words, you know. War is, war is peace. All that stuff. Big Brother. Yeah, they kind of did it. So basically something that was meant to prevent the government from getting in. Still had the government getting in. These tactics by the CCA worked. Distributors were in fear of their sales due to the previous outrages and refused to carry comics without the CCA seal. So that, that's interesting. That's one thing I usually forget. You had to opt into it, so your comics had to be approved. And that would take a long time, and you had to pay dues for this. So if you were an up-and-coming writer or an artist or something, um, I mean, that your, your success was really hinging on whether you could get that seal. That's how it is for a lot of things now. You know, private labs, our private labeling, their seal of approval on products and stuff. But, um, you know, even though you could do it without it, 
it was highly suggested that you do. And I mean, in some cases I understand it, but at the same time, it's like you could take the risk and not do it. But that was entirely up to these people. Uh, Many think that this is the free market at work, but keep in mind that while the CCA was not actually law, it came with pressure and support from the government. The power had gone to the head of the CCA, one specifically led to the censoring of Marv Wolfman's name. Since Wolfman couldn't be in comics, it was flagged and asked to be removed. Fortunately, they settled the matter and Wolfman was allowed to keep his name in the comics as a creator credit. Next part, the fight for freedom. While the CCA had a hold of the comic industry by the Pokeballs for a number of years, some people bucked the CCA. Publisher William Gaines, the creator of popular popular titles like Tales from the Crypt and Mad. Oh, God, I can't believe Mad Magazine got canceled. That, that bothered me so much. Anyway, was one of the original naysayers. Gaines made an effort to fight Judge Murphy after reprinting of a pre-code story was objected because the central character was not black. At this time, stories dealing with racial prejudice would only be accepted in comics if the central character was black. Gaines wound up losing the fight and left comics shortly thereafter to work on his comics turned magazine title, Mad. That's so crazy. They were even, oh, like, okay, we're, to, we're supposed to talk about one of the, like, the most racist time periods of American history, but even that was like a, a big social justice warrior type of move right there. That's, that's insane. <laughs> that is so weird. I wonder if this is why Mad Magazine, even though like teenagers could read it and if you read you know, any issue you'd realize that wasn't as like R-rated and edgy as the reputation was. I think maybe that's why my parents never let me read it growing up and why a lot of other people weren't allowed to either. It was always something that like people in college read and older. But if you go back and look at Mad Magazine, like maybe it's because I'm looking at it through contemporary eyes, but whatever. In the early 70s, Stan Lee, who was then the editor-in-chief at Marvel, was solicited by the United States Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to concoct a story about the dangers of substance abuse. Now, my personal, and this is the author here, now my personal issue here is that the government shouldn't be in the business of promoting propaganda through private companies. Still, the CCA gave pushback, but backed by the government, Stanley pushed through without the CCA stamp of approval and published the three-issue Spider-Man run. Side note, this would actually go on to actually be one of the most important Spider-Man runs ever, but he, he gets to that later. However, these were not the first to push back against the CCA. Just as within any form of regulation, there was an explosion of underground comics through the 60s and 70s that, that depicted material not approved by the CCA. These comics were never in comic shops nor widely distributed, but were sold in adult shops. Oh, maybe this is where the reputation of it all being porn came from. Mmm. Yeah, things start to make sense now. Um, one very popular adult comic called Cherry Pop Tart was re- <laughs> These names. <laughs> These names alone. Okay, I can see how that's a little salacious. Uh, was released in 1982 and followed a young girl through a number of her sexual escapades. Ironically, it was drawn in Archie comic style, which was also a comic known for being very wholesome. So it was satire. Everything is satirized these days. Despite the fact the code was written in 1954, it was less than two decades before the revisions to the code would start. In 1971, revisions began to allow for, among other things, the sometimes, quote, sympathetic depiction of criminal behavior. 
and corruption among public officials, as long as it is portrayed as exceptional and the culprit is punished. How can they how can they say this isn't censorship? You're telling people what they can and can't write about. War is peace. Ignorance is strength or something like that. Big brother jumping in. Um, as well as permitting some criminal activities to kill law enforcement officers in the, quote, suggestion but not portrayal of seduction. Come on. Come on. Also, newly allowed were vampires, ghouls, and werewolves. When handled in the classic tradition such as Frankenstein, Dracula, and other high-caliber literary works written by Edgar Allan Poe, Saki, Conan Doyle, and other respected authors whose works are read in schools around the world. It was only a short time after that, 1975, when zombies first started appearing in comics. It still wouldn't be until 1986 when the CCA would completely allow the violence of zombies that we have come to know today. And I mean, who doesn't love zombies? Next part, the fall of the Empire. While a few comic companies come under the seal in the late 80s and early 90s, now comics and bongo comics join the CCA. Most companies that began coming out in the 2000s didn't join. And this is where you find strength. You find other people, they're tired of this BS, and then you just be awesome and do your thing. This led to the eventual disbanding of the seal on comics. Marvel and DC began releasing adult and mature content under sub-companies in order to maintain their status with the CCA. So you might be aware of things like Marvel Knights. Um, these days, a really good example is DC Black Label, where you take characters like Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, you put them in like R-rated situations. Awesome stuff, but that's what they had to do. So you would have like the main Daredevil comics, but then you have like Marvel Knights Daredevil. Or if they wanted to take an ongoing series and make it really jacked up, they would make it like Punisher Max. If a comic at the time had Max on there, it was definitely R-rated. In some cases, in the early like Marvel Knight stage, it was like real, real R, like hard R. Um, anyway, going back, Marvel began, Marvel and DC began releasing adult and mature content under subcompanies in order to maintain their status with the CCA, but still be competitive with the new emerging market. Eventually, companies began to leave the CCA. Marvel in 2001, Bongo in 2010. Who does, who, what does Bongo publish? Oh, they, they published the Simpsons stuff. Oh, some of the Simpsons comics were better than the show. But then again, the show's been crap for like 10 years now, so whatever. Uh, in D.C. along with Archie in 2011, and all left CCA, which rendered the CCA obsolete. Marvel and D.C. went on to incorporate their own rating systems, which fans have come to trust. See? You don't need government. Let, let the market do what the market wants and let people self-regulate. There's nothing wrong with that. Archie Comics were not as concerned about the rating system as they, quote, <laughs> aren't about to start stuffing bodies into refrigerators. That's where the term fridging women starts. And I think I know what they're talking about. There was a there, there's a long tradition in comics where women are basically like murdered in order to justify the hero going off and do something. The Punisher is an example. But the refrigerator quote came from Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern. He was the third Green Lantern after Hal Jordan and Jon Stewart, I think around the time that Guy Gardner came in. So maybe it's the fourth. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Um, in order for Kyle Rayner to truly embrace his Green Lantern powers and his responsibility, his uh, supervillain Major Force murdered his girlfriend and stuffed her body in a fridge. So that's where the term fridging women comes from. The more you know. 
Um, the people in the 50s spoke out and were able to get what they wanted. Unfortunately, this came through government pressure. However, the good side was that we were able to leave the regulations in the hand, hands of the private sector, despite barriers to entry that were placed to keep those that went against the CCA out. Being part of the CCA was voluntary. See, see when, when government does something like this and they say it's voluntary, it's basically like saying, if you don't do this, you're going to fail and it's not our fault. It's it's that whole mental legalese mind game stuff. So even though it was voluntary, they were basically going to make sure you failed if you didn't willingly join. Throughout the next five decades, we saw the layers of regulation fall away, and eventually we were left with a comic book world that was trusted and can appeal to all kinds of people. This is what private regulation, volunteerism, and free markets can do. We now have a superior product, and no one was technically forced. Companies can regulate themselves based on the feedback they receive. The comic book world is one of the last frontiers of pulp prints. We have worked hard to have a world in which we enjoy comics. Let's keep it that way. And I, I think that's, uh, yeah, no, he, he did a great job covering this, and it, it's amazing. And, you know, I just realized, I was thinking, huh, has Archie kind of gone edgy? Yeah, Archie did go edgy the last couple of years. And if you want an example, just look at Riverdale R- Riverdale on CW and Sabrina on uh, Netflix. That shit got crazy. But, I mean, such is the times, right? Okay, Comics Economics Part 2, The History of the Comic Book Shop. Um, there we go. There has been an ever vast growing debate on when and where the first comic shop opened up. I'm not here to debate the fact. I will leave that up to the trolls and the threads. I want to give a brief history of comic shops and the progression of distribution. Finally, we can end with the market of comics. So don't take this to mean that the first comic shop is the first one I have listed. Comics have been an ongoing trend for some time. Some may even say they helped us win the war. Others write them off as nothing but childish fantasy novels. However, the one thing that we can all agree on is that comics have an incredible impact on American life. Part 1, the first comic store. I thought I'd have a more epic voice. I'll have to auto-tune that shit. Okay. The first comic book was uh, fat, was famous fu- and I'm, when I say book like that it's because it's quotes because you know there were comic strips and they were looking at comic books you, you, you get what I mean anyway the first comic book I don't know why I'm doing air, fin- air, air quotes really you can't see it uh, was famous funnies and was printed in 1933 the first issue was a collective reprinting of comic strips from newspapers so yeah they weren't like original comic books in the way that they are today but they were basically like graphic novels so they take all the strips from like a year's worth of paper papers in the funny section and they put them in a book so you could just buy them all without having to collect all the papers some may argue that The Adventures of Mr. Obadiah Oldbuck was the first printed comic book, but these were considered to be merely prototypes. The big turning point in the comic came in 1938, with the creation of Superman in Action Comics issue 1 was released. This ushered in the now-coined term, Golden Age of Comics. Action Comics number 1 is important in so many ways. This is the first Golden Age book, the first appearance of a superhero, and the first appearance of Superman. Um, I, I do take a little issue with that because there were masked heroes who fought crime like the spirit, but I, I, I guess I, I guess I get what he means by superhero being Superman because Superman was the first human being to display actual power. So yeah, it's probably what he means. Um, this issue is considered to be the pinnacle of comics and one of the rarest. I think they, I mean, those things sell for 
tens of millions of dollars. It's insane. Comics were originally sold in drugstores, newsstands, and even some bookstores. The first stores that could ever be considered comic shops were usually shops that sold a number of different items, like Pop Hillinger's store in Concordia, Kansas. Pop opened his shop in the late 1930s and basically sold back issues of comics. Pop also used to repair comics. Although these methods would be seen as primitive and blasphemous to collectors today, we can say that if Pop didn't have the first comic shop, then he was the first comic restoration shop. Shops began to sprout, out, sprout up all over the place. Robert Bell's Victory Thrift Shop in Queens, New York, and Cherokee Bookshop in Hollywood, California in 1960. Seven Sons Comic Shop in San Jose, California, and Gary Arlington San Francisco Comic Book Company, San Francisco, California in 1968, all of which actually beat Sidebottom in opening their first in opening up their doors to sell comics, despite the fact many believe that Sidebottom was the first comic shop. The comic shop became a haven for fans. The shop itself formed a community in which like-minded people had a place to come together and discuss all things geeky. Thank you, people. Really, like, think about it. The, the, the last segment was all about censorship. Now it's about people using the market, using capitalism, using their own wits about them to give people what they want. Stores dedicated to the things they love. The comic shop became a haven for fans. The shop itself formed a community in which like-minded people have had a place to come together and discuss all things geeky. The newsstands used to purchase comics in large quantities because whatever was not sold could be returned for the newsstands' money back. Companies did it this way as a way to incentivize newsstands to carry their products. However, these companies would sell comics, then have a buyback program where they would buy them at a fraction of the price and finally return them for a full refund. This led to newsstands almost um, doubling the money and comic supplies losing a vast amount of profit. Fixing the problem. Uh, direct marketing was created in the 1970s. There was one distributor for the comic companies, Diamond Comic Distributors, and these people are freaking evil. I, I hate them. No, they're, they're an absolute monopoly. Absolutely evil. Anyway, continuing. This was the company who would not distribute. This was the company who would not distribute a comic unless it carried the Comics Code Authority stamp, the CCA stamp we were talking about in the last segment. Um, the largest change to that direct-to-market distribu- distributing... Um, the largest change that direct-to-market distributing offered was non-refundable comics. Since comics no longer needed a barcode, many artists began to put little pictures in place of the barcode space. Distributors would receive a promo kit, usually for issue one, and then based on that issue and promo kit, they would gauge how much of each issue they would want to order. So if they didn't order enough, then they lost profit. But if they ordered too much, then they were stuck with overflow. This overflow created a market for the infamous infamous back issue. You know, stuff in the long boxes, they're usually in the bags and boards. Back issues have become an integral part of comic collecting. For quite some time, comic shops would have rows and rows of long boxes full of back issues. People would come to comic shops to hunt for these issues in order to complete story arcs. There was no eBay back then. Nonetheless, an Amazon. Uh, this direct-to-market and back-issue era changed comic collecting. One way collectors look at comics is by their level of rarity. Scarcity, essentially. This is another reason that Action Comics Issue 1 is so expensive. 
there are somewhere around 50 to 100 issues in circulation. And I, I can tell you for a fact that has not changed since this article was published. See, the longer a comic has been around, the more scarce it is. However, that isn't as true with today's comics, which is why the Golden Age era is so expensive. Comics have a level of scarcity. During the book-burning period and the paper returns for recycling pulp, many magazines before the 1950s were simply destroyed. Comics before the 70s were mostly returned for their cash value and buyback programs. Comics before the early 90s were shelved in back-issue bins. Today, we are seeing a tightening of printed issues in exchange for tradebacks and digital prints of comics. The era of collecting. Because certain comics are rare and desirable, there arose a marketplace for comics. This flooded the market in several ways. Many people were buying up comics left and right through the 90s in hopes of cashing in for retirement based on their comics. We will get to the speculative market in a moment. First, I want to talk about another area of the comic book industry that came out of the Comic Crazy Certified Grading System. The CGC, the Certified Grading Company, was founded in 2000 and has become the premier comic, trading card, coin, etc. grading company in the world. For a fee, you can send your comic into CGC and have them examine the comic and give it a grade between 1 and 10 with 10 being gem. From there, they encapsulate it with a tag of the notes and grade. This is what it does and basically gives the person the ability to price the item accordingly. Now, the reason there was a demand for this grading company is because of the speculative market that arose in the 1990s. People began to see comics from the 60s and 70s were selling for hundreds and thousands of dollars. Speculators thought this was a great investment. Kind of like Bitcoin. Haha, I know I made some people mad with that. Whatever. Speculators thought this would make a great investment. They would buy any issue they thought was going to be worth something down the road. Mainly, they collected first editions of variant covers. There was a huge market for foil and hologram covers. Comic companies were more than happy to crank out second printings of variant covers to generate more revenue. And I'm pretty sure that in brick-and-mortar comic shops today... Um, you'll see even really shitty comic book titles perform because they come out with a ton of variants and then people want to buy those variants. And like it, it was fun at the beginning and I still buy variant covers now, primarily if like let's say the main cover I want isn't available, but it's it's gotten ridiculous. But that's, that's a story for another time. Uh, the comic bubble of the 90s. This created a very large bubble in the comic book world and all those comics that speculators were banking on became worthless. There were too many printed who wants the death of Superman when everyone who wants one has at least one of them? The subjective value of comics causes the objective value to decrease basic economics. In the late 90s, comic companies, especially Marvel, the bane of the comic book world right now, despite what you fanboys might say, and I bet you only love the movies because Marvel Comics right now sucks, uh, were going broke because of the recoil in the market and the inability to adjust to the bubble that popped. Marvel and DC began to sell off their movie rights for characters and groups. That's why, you know, for years, all of Marvel's heroes belonged to different companies, like Spider-Man belonged to Sony, and X-Men belonged to Fox, and, I mean, that's, that's led to a mess of things, but now Disney owns everything, because Disney is God. Um, this is how we came to the movies we have today, starting with X-Men in the year 2000. Comics are not above the laws of supply and demand. 
I'm going to read that again because that is so freaking important. Comics are not above the laws of supply and demand. These old issues are still valuable, and a lot of 90s comics just aren't. Economic principles with human behavior and not money in and of itself. Economics is about players in the market. That is why so many people who subscribe to both the Chicago and Austrian schools of thought understand the market so well. We look at the market in a different light. This is a living, breathing organism and not an object that we can simply manipulate. Think of all the central planners. Things usually go wrong. It's all their fault. That's what the speculators tried to do, and they failed. The comic companies have recovered based on free market tactics and not government bailouts. I think that a number of companies can learn from the moves made in the comic book industry. And now we're on to part three, comic economics, part three, comics today. Once again, Rocky Fanberg is a pro at this. Me and him can geek out about comics all day. Go definitely hit him up if you've got questions about any of this. Remember, all everything I'm reading is in the show notes today. Go ahead and read these. Check out the hyperlinks and stuff. We're on the last part now. Comics today. There's been a lot of uproar about comics over the last two decades. Fans have been on a wild ride. And trust me, I was like, you know, like, I, I don't think I hit puberty when Iron Man came out. And now I'm sitting in the theaters watching Infinity War with a whole bunch of scruff and a deeper voice crying my heart out. I mean, Endgame broke me. It broke me. Anyway, um, fans have been on a wild ride, especially have been riding since the 70s or 80s. No matter how long you've been on the train, speculation has been a part of this world. Let's take a look at speculation today. Part 1, The Recovery. Ever since Marvel began to sell off their movie rights, we have seen Marvel Comics and the comic industry return with a vengeance. A beautiful, beautiful vengeance. Which has also given us things like Snowflake and Safe Space and Be Negative and all those other losers from the New New Warriors by Marvel. I'm going to bitch about that in a separate episode. Sometimes good things come at a cost. The cost is quality. Marvel hates you. Marvel is evil. I'm going on a tangent, sorry. Ever since Marvel began to sell off their movie rights, we have seen uh, Marvel Comics and the comic industry return with a vengeance, blah, blah, blah. Part of this has to do with the Disney-Marvel merger. Disney, in conjunction with Marvel, has created the largest interconnected cinematic universe, the MCU. If you're alive, you've seen a Marvel movie, and you probably love and hate a couple at least, but you can thank the MCU, really, to Disney. Other nerds will note such movies as Star Trek, Star Wars, and even Jay and Silent Bob, but these pale in comparison to the leaps that Disney has made in Marvel Studios. Disney is continuing to grow their recent purchase of Fox, which is is just crazy when you think about it, which includes a wide variety of charters like the Fantastic Four and X-Men. Side note, Marvel actually canceled the Fantastic Four for like three years when the Josh Trank, Fantastic Four film that nobody went to see was going to come out because they didn't want to make them any money off of merchandising or be associated with those films. So basically, in order to publish these, in order to punish these other companies, Marvel was basically willing to make the fans suffer by canceling the comics they love. I mean, they did that with Wolverine. They completely screwed up the X-Men until they won Fox over. And I mean, it's, it's, it's business strong handing strong arming it's it's not good for people who want to actually enjoy the co- the content and the comics it's it's i don't like it not like it. i think it's unethical 
I think it's bad. You can disagree with me, but whatever. Uh, this success over the last decade has seen a growing demand for comics again. I don't agree with that part because what we saw was that when, um, especially with uh, Kevin Feige, now he's the creative head of Marvel, including the comics publishing arm of things. And I would say that the comics, which used to be really the fountainhead for everything which the shows, the games, and the films are based off of, have now become like cheap merchandise for it. So we've seen a big downgrade in the level of stories and the level of art because really they're just hoping that people will maybe buy a few issues or maybe buy a lot of stuff, but they're not building a long-term customer base. It's more flash-in-the-pan tactics. The movies got cooler, but the comics got worse because of that. And I'm just talking Marvel. Just talking Marvel. The comics got so much worse. Um, with characters becoming re-envisioned and the characters on screen actually affecting how writers craft modern-day stories, we are seeing some big changes and we are seeing the growth of comics again. Um, I, I'm going to have to talk to Rocky about that. I wonder if his opinion has changed since this when this came out in 2018. Some newer comics are shooting up in value like Ultimate Fallout 4, the first appearance of Miles Morales, and Edge of Spider-Verse 2, the first appearance of Spider-Gwen. You saw them in the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse movie, which is freaking amazing. Um, However, this market is very different from the comic collectors had in the 80s and 90s. Many comic connoisseurs are moving into the digital age. The age of digital... I'm sorry, the on-demand age of comics. This next part. The days of hunting through long boxes for that one issue to complete a story are gone. Many people have moved onto platforms like Comics and Marvel Unlimited to get their comic fix. And I just want to point that Marvel Unlimited recently canceled because it was easier just to work with places like Comics, uh, C-O-M-I-X, so C-O-M-I-X Comics, and then um, uh, Comicology. So they base Marvel basically outsourced to them since they have better infrastructure and it's cheaper that way. Um, I actually think that was a pretty good business decision because instead of having a whole ton of apps, it's just like, hey, we'll just publish there and it works out. So I think it was fine. Some people were complaining about it, but like if you have a bunch of comics on Marvel Unlimited, you can still access it. It's not like they went away or anything. And I think you, I think they're going to do it so you can transfer it over so you can consolidate it into comics or comicology. But, um, yeah, I mean, that stuff is still changing. Uh, They're like a Netflix-like subscription service, which allows subscribers to access a library of comics to read digitally. Um, I will do a correction. Yeah, there are some like that, but now it's turning more into you could do that or you can actually own the comics, which means you're probably going to pay like a dollar below the physical print retail. So that's just one thing to note. With this new move and the undeniable black cloud of the 90s bubble, mass production, and the dreaded foil, hologram, and variant covers, we could see an even greater declining market for these modern-age books. And I I mean, I don't think it has to do with that. I think it's because you're charging for like a 16-page comic like five bucks. That's why Marvel hates you. They're making you pay for – they're making you pay more for incredibly inferior comics. I mean, I remember uh, when I was in high school, DC had the whole thing where they were like, we draw the line at two ninety nine. Yeah, two ninety nine was what it was basically for a while. Now it's like three, four, five, six dollars. It's getting ridiculous. Uh, next part, speculation today. Now I know this is merely a speculation, so this is the author's speculation, and we have seen how that turns out. But with the decline in value, then it could be assumed that many of these comics will eventually be thrown out. So, as we have seen, and as we know, supply and demand have an inverse relationship. So, as these issues get destroyed and the market begins to take notice of the price, 
it'll inevitably rise. See, gold and silver age books are valuable not simply because they are old, but because they are rare. Scarcity. Scarcity. Think of that. Now you can go on eBay and find, uh, you know, a, a whole bunch of Avengers number eights, the first appearance of Kang, and think, well, it's not that rare. But look at how many copies of X-Men issue 1 from 1991, the Guinness Book World Record holder for best-selling comic, did. The price difference may be affected by how old they are, but also comics that were as old as the X-Men comics were now selling for for drastically higher prices. Coupled with inflation, it would be better to purchase that comic today than if it had been in the 90s. And what uh, he, he didn't explain it, but there's a hyperlink in there. That X-Men issue 1 from 1991 had like 20 variant covers. I think they published like 8 million copies of that. Then they had a second printing. So they had people that were buying them like fist over fist. They had like boxes and warehouse full of it. And now you can find it in a back issue section of a comic book store for like a buck. And you could probably haggle for like 50 cents if you really wanted to. I mean, they're just everywhere. Everywhere. That's what happens when you inflate it. If only we could learn that when it comes to our money. Anyway, basic market. Uh, the basic market today is certainly gearing toward collecting key issues. These are first appearances, story arcs, or any other key issue. Like first appearances of characters or deaths of characters or when Spider-Man changes his costume the 20th time. Um, first appearances can include characters or items, items like the Infinity Gauntlet, that type of thing. Um, story arcs have been increasing because of the adaptions along with the speculation of which the story of which story will be adapted next. Like, you know, the Civil War comic was a big, important series, one of the last great events that Marvel did, and it was the basis for Captain America Civil War. So obviously for a lot of people that were just getting into the stuff because of the films, they know that Captain America Civil War is coming up, so they want to get you know, understand how it was in the comics, and then they'll go buy and back buy the back issues or the hardcovers of that, yada yada. Um, today we are seeing the advent of new characters in some modern day issues, which are guaranteeing a spike at some point in the future. Speculation of very obscure characters like Moon Girl, Squirrel Girl, Riri Williams, and others are causing people to look deeper into comic lore, even if it isn't too far back. Like Miles Morales and Spider Gwen did great, even Gwenpool the Gwen Stacy Deadpool crossover uh, Moon Girl I, I I have no clue what's going off that Squirrel Girl was popular for a while I don't, I don't understand why I include that there she's become more popular um, Riri Williams has no personality and as Ironheart is one of the worst modern creations ever she was really the anti Tony Stark so yeah I, I don't think <laughs> this is definitely a 2018 article uh, next, uh, I think, yeah, we got two more parts. Getting into comic collecting. So there is a bubble today centered around the Marvel Studios uh, line of properties along with DC and others. The new comic market isn't a bad place to look. However, there are warning signs. For example, when Marvel was launching the movie Captain America Civil War, they concurrently released their crossover event, Civil War II. This was a great marketing tactic to get speculators to buy comics from them. But us with an eagle eye can see through this tactic. Yeah, so remember how earlier I mentioned that when Kevin Feige really started jumping in, he started using the comics as just really a merchandising arm of the films? This is when it happened. This is a great example of when it happened because Civil War II was terrible. Absolutely dreadful. My dad once told me that an item is only worth what someone is willing to pay for it. 
After that, I threw away my Pokemon card collection, which had about three first edition Charizard holographic cards in it. Roughly $9,000 today. Oh, so that's like twenty-one dollars you threw away. Oh, bro, I feel bad for you. Along with an array of other holographics in it. However, he did have a great point. This is why we see discrepancies in the market versus the Overstreet price guide. Some comics sell higher or lower on the market. This is why it is just a guide. If I had an issue that I want to sell for $10, but the most anyone's willing to pay for it is 8 then by default, the issue is only worth 8 bucks. Comics are known to inflate with the release of a character or story adaption. Nevertheless, the price doesn't stay high. When the price does level out, though, it is typically higher than the pre-movie price. So you can tell that when Deadpool got, finally got his movie, and we will never talk about X-Men Origins Wolverine, never, ever, ever. Yeah, everything Deadpool-related became incredibly high. If a comic valued is uh, if a comic is valued at hundred dollars, and then there is a movie announced, then the price might jump up to two hundred. After the hype of that movie, it might settle back to one fifty and remain there. However, there is also the flooding of the market. So if a character is coming out in their own movie or is appearing in, you know, for the first time in a the movie, then their comics are just going to be worth more, and people are going to be willing to sell them. Just as competition is great for the consumer, we can see it here as well. The now $200 comic we used in the last example might get undercut by someone who's selling it for $190, which would mean that if I want to up my chances of selling it, I might need to come down to $185. Still, with other factors to consider, I might be able to keep my price that high. And I mean, this is where the whole, you know, rating and condition system comes in. I mean, I think if I I don't sell my comics, I usually give them away if I'm going to do that. But, uh, you know, I... It, it, it's stuff like this where it, it gets really dicey. You really see this at conventions. Conventions, if you buy back issues at a convention, you better make sure you're getting the deal of a lifetime. Other than that, if you don't do your homework, you might spend something that is a ridiculous amount otherwise useless comic. This happens in a number of markets and sometimes by surprise. Look at the recent Banksy painting that was just auctioned off. Banksy rigged the painting to shred itself once it was auctioned off. Oh, I'm including that clip. I remember that. That was painful to watch. All that money go away. I'm including that link in the show notes. Before the eyes of all the bidders, the painting went from a beautiful artwork to canvas rags on the floor. However, there was a great market for this painting now because of the attention and historical factors surrounding it. It also is probably going to sell for more than that now. But either way, it may be worth more in its original price in the future than its original price in the future just because of the popularity surrounding the controversy. How to trade today. And this is the last section. There are many ways to collect and trade today. Many collectors are fans and therefore collect what they like, along with issues that have some kind of sentimental value. However, this article is about speculation. The way to play the game with comics is to know what you need to know, people. Much like you would be in any other area, you will need to be aware that Easter eggs and characters along with the wordings and story arcs. Maybe, maybe you know, knowing who... who know the difference between a John Romita Jr. Uh, piece and other things. Maybe something written by Brian Michael Bendis. Learn, learn that type of stuff. Plus, you will need to be in the know of what the studios own the rights to and what characters they own the rights to, and how they can incorporate them. You know, I brought up what Marvel did to the X-Men and Fantastic Four series. Absolutely dreadful. Marvel is evil. 
Also, it would be in your best interest to be up to date with uh, new characters that are coming out in modern comics, along with staying up to date on toy releases. There are times when some things may be revealed through toys before they are released through upcoming films. And let me tell you, if you want the ultimate spoiler, whenever a superhero movie comes out, you can tell what the whole story is going to be and how it will end based off Lego. Trust me, go look at the Lego play sets for the Avengers and they always tell you what's going to happen. The idea here is to be able to grab a comic well before the movie is announced. I grabbed a Miss Marvel 1 graded at 8.5 for $70. Now the same comic is selling for 300 bucks. I don't plan on selling it, but that is an example. See that comic that will probably come to rest at about $200 after all the Miss Marvel dust settles. I'm pretty sure that Miss Marvel is less popular now than ever before because Marvel once again destroyed everything about her. The comic game is similar to trading stocks. Buy low, sell high. No one to get in and no one to get out. Some people know what they're doing and some don't. What you don't want to do is grab every comic you can or grab propaganda like Death of Superman or Civil War 2. How dare you, Rocky, if you're listening to this, how dare you put the Death of Superman in the same category as Civil War 2? Death of Superman and the return and the rise of the Supermen and the return of Superman are one of the best, you know, best storylines in comic book history. And to put it in Civil War 2, which is trash, that just completely upended great characters and propped up. Feminist evil Marvel woman, I mean Captain Marvel, whatever the hell her name is, like just oh that that grinds my gears, Rocky, or anything that has a foil cover to sit for thirty or forty years. I buy foil covers, man. Like I buy them, I like them. If you like them, you like them. Don't I? I feel like you're too hard on that. I like variants. I like some variants, but you know, I, I I guess I mean you're talking the newbie. So okay, Rocky, I'll leave it alone. Uh, this is not going to play in your favor. However, there is a possibility with the movie with moving toward digital comics that in the future the craze of the '90s may come back as a payoff. And let's leave that to speculation. So these were the three parts of the comic economics series by Rocky Farenberg at Think Liberty. Everything is in the show notes. Uh, my final conclusion: Listen, comics are great. I collect them. If you're into the whole buying and selling thing, know what you're getting into. But I will say is this. Um, I, I am often really hard on Marvel because what Marvel did was they began to really destroy a lot of their characters, the things that made them who they were, and they became merchandising, you know, mer- merchandising opportunities for the films. And I still go see the Marvel films. I like them. But the problem with Marvel is that they really don't like the readers that have kept them in business for so many years through bankruptcies and rebranding and every bad thing in between. And they stuck by them because they love the characters and they want to support the community. And Marvel has instead tried to find this androgynous, woke, liberal crowd of people who won't spend money on the comics because maybe they might buy you know clothes and other merchandise. But it's just not it anymore. It's not about the stories. It's not about the fans. And that's why I absolutely cannot stand Marvel right now. But uh, yeah, love talking comics. Talk to me anytime about it. We'll do more stuff about this. We got to get Rocky on. I spoke to him the other day. I'm like, Rocky, you're my comic guy now. We're going to have to have you come on and talk about it. So yeah, see this episode as a primer for future things to come. And I'll talk to you later. Take care.
check out our other shows and more from the We Are Libertarians Network at wearelibertarians.com.